Welcome back again to Sprawlingly Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. And I'm still Spro. And we're back again so soon. Quick turnaround with another interview. This one featuring actor, writer, comedian, Aliyah Kanani, who played Miss Hina in Scarborough. Our choice for the best picture in the world 2022 that came out in 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. This is also every time that we do an end of the season interview, I feel like we're checking off more and more countries of people, countries that we visit and film industries that we talk to and talk about and learn more about. And so this is Canada. Yes, we do need to branch out into non-English speaking countries. There is a little Easter egg in the, I don't know, Easter egg trivia, something. You'll hear in the episode that I, when talking to a Canadian, I reference the United States as America and quickly change it to the, say the United States because I forget that America, that the United States is not America, the United States of America. Right. You know what I'm saying? But, but how you're honoring the legacy and memory of Amerigo Vespucci by just referring to everything <laughs> as America, right? I love your brain, bro. Like, good oh, job with that one. Thanks. Let's stop fucking around and get to the end of the thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we are welcoming... Aliyah Kanani, comedian, director, writer, producer, and self-described vagabond. Currently joining us from Perth, Australia, through the wonders of technology. Hi, Miss Kanani. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing? This is this is fun. It's um, I go to bed very early, so this is. I feel like I'm feel like I'm having like a like a virtual sleepover or something. I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting having to coordinate the times with people from across the world. I'm always just trying to do math, and it hurts my brain so much. But here we are. We figured yeah. it out on three different time zones, no less. Thanks for coming in to talk to us today. I am Lee. He is Spro. I am Spro. Hi, Spro. Hello. I am, uh, unfortunately, because the light in the room that I am in does not work, and I normally record during the day, I'm recording by candlelight, and it's a little... It's a little squiffy in here. So that I'm sounds to... really romantic. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I could see stuff, but uh, you know, I can sort of, I can sort of see. So uh, one thing that I'm interested in, that we're interested in, is talking about the GTA, which um, we spoke with one of your co-stars, Connor Casey, who introduced us to the GTA because we were talking about Scarborough, obviously the film. Um, which Spro and I believe is the best film of the 12 countries that we examined. He mentioned that you and he sort of grew up around the same area. Um, what was it like growing up in, uh, was it Mississauga? Uh, so I actually, I grew up in a bunch of areas, I, I gotta be honest with you. So it's, it's hard for me to, you know, draw back to all of the, the experiences. Sure. I've, I changed like 10 schools growing up and among those were different cities as well, right? But uh, yeah, I did grow up a little bit in Mississauga at one point. Um, I've also, you know, uh, lived in in Scarborough when I was younger as well and in um, different parts of Toronto, obviously. But the area that I was in, I remember when I moved, I think, to the particular place that Connor is referring to in Mississauga. We were there after I had moved from Calgary. And it was such a, it's so interesting because folks often ask me about the culture shock of when I moved from Canada to Tanzania. And I'm like, you should see the culture shock when I moved from Calgary to Toronto. <laughs> like, it was so extreme because we were growing up with like 
stampede and 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 you know learning how to line dance and and then I moved into Mississauga um, and we were we were in government housing at the time and the area that we lived in there was it just so happened to be predominantly Jamaican folk in that neighborhood and now I'm like going from going to Stampede to going to Caravana and learning how to you know butterfly and dance to reggae music which was like a completely different world for me but like the area I lived in itself like I lived in this like cul-de-sac and all the kids from the neighborhood they all they all knew each other and you know you'd go over to your friend's parents place for dinner and it wasn't like a big deal at all because it was all in the same block in the same cul-de-sac and there was this one like center that was just basically just a open space that was there that was kind of like the community center but it was just literally just four walls but it was in the middle of the cul-de-sac on an island (laughs) and we used to have birthday parties in there and stuff and it was really it was just it was a really cool vibe like we'd sit on our stoop and you know make those bracelets with those I I forget what they're called um you know when kids back in the the 90s late 90s we'd have those like those plastic ribbon things and we'd make bracelets and sell them the rainbow looms maybe that's what it was I can't remember what it was called, but anyway, we used to I'm do out of that. My, I'm out of my depth. I'm out of my depth on this conversation. <laughs> yeah, my like, students still do rainbow looms. Oh, do they? Oh, it was so <laughs> fun. We used to learn how to do all those different kinds of braid techniques and stuff like that. And just, yeah, sit around and make bracelets and keychains and just all kinds of tacky decor that we try to convince each other's parents to buy. And it was good, though. It was good. It was a really good vibe. Like, we were very innocent kids, you know, and just kind of had this real community vibe there that you wouldn't necessarily think, uh, looking from the outside, that, like, from all these displaced folks that just end up in this place. But I think because of that, we kind of needed that sense of community. And uh, yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice. I think the weirdest thing when we were talking to your co-star and he was like, he's like, it's so weird that you guys are calling this a foreign film because I don't necessarily see it as, you know, like Canada versus America, United States being so close to proximity, like would Scarborough be a foreign film? And I was like, yeah, that is kind of crazy because, you know, I'm a three hour car ride to Toronto. So I don't necessarily see it as that. But then I, one, watched the film, loved the film, but I read the book over the weekend. And while like the human element and the human experience is all like, we can all focus on that. We can all, you know, empathize with it and everything. There's a lot that I was reading in Scarborough that I was like, this is completely unlike what it feels like in Cleveland. Just the, you know, in Cleveland, it's a very Eastern European settlement and everything like that. My my neighbors would be Hungarian or Polish or Irish or German, where all the people that she was writing about in Scarborough are from all different kinds of places. I don't know necessarily how much you know about American cities, but I mean, like, if you could equate Scarborough with something that we have down here, what city would it be like, do you think? You know, I mean, I think that, like, I would lean towards, you know, probably one of the New York suburbs, to be honest with you. That's probably the more multicultural multi-ethnic areas that I've seen exist in, you know, the suburbs of New York. Also, the timing, like there's been such like long settlements of new immigrants. So even though they haven't been there for, you know, 300, 400 years, but they've been there for about two and a half generations now, some of the folks. And so it's, I think it's about about the same in, in some of the, like, I, I think that I was, uh, when I was in, you know, Brooklyn last, although I got to say that, you know, you can turn the corner in Brooklyn and it can be a completely different look. 
especially with the gentrification of things as well. But I think when I was in Brooklyn last, I did get like a bit of a vibe of what it feels like to live in some of the suburbs of Toronto as well. I don't know if I could uh, think of another... Because I do find that in the U.S. there is a lot of... Like you go to places like Chicago or, you know, there's still a lot of separation in mm. how folks group together. But you're right, there is a real unique feel to Scarborough in that there is a lot of different shades of brown, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, people that are from, you know, everywhere from like the Filipino community to the, you know, Indian Pakistani communities, you know, Jamaicans, Trinidadians, like there's all kinds of different different makeup that makes Scarborough. It is it is a unique place in that. But I think that, you know, the familiarity of Scarborough is that it's not necessarily tying to those exact cultures, but it's saying that there is a lot of places in the world like that where, you know, there are these kind of, you know, sort of forgotten suburbs where like folks are, you know, going there. They've been there for a couple of generations. They're living just below the poverty line or just above it and just trying to figure things out. And there's not a lot of community support. There's not a lot like in terms of government support, I should say, but there's a lot of community and and folks that are just trying to help each other out because they're all kind of coming in the same position of trying to survive and make ends meet and do the best they can in this foreign land right and at the same time keeping their own identity and their own traditions and whatnot mm-hmm. like it was just that's amazing I say that's a really beautiful thing is, is keeping their own traditions alive as well as it must have been well maybe not it must have been but was it a trip to return to scarborough to shoot the film how long had it been since you'd been there you know, it was, I, I'd been back to Scarborough a few times. My sister was living out there. So I'd, I'd been in uh, Scarborough enough that it wasn't a shock to see, you know, the the difference in terms of like the aesthetic, like the buildings that are missing or there, etc. But it was, I, I guess, nice to revisit the culture of Scarborough, which, you know, when I was going to see my sister, I don't think I necessarily immersed myself in the culture of Scarborough. You know, I would just drive up to her apartment, park up, go see her. Maybe we'd go for dinner in the area, but very rarely I would just stay at her place. So to, to kind of look around and, and remember how much diversity exists within Scarborough, to remember the challenges of the folks that don't have access to certain things in Scarborough, um, and to see, you know, the mix within the community and the and to remember the stories of the support of the community uh, as well was really nice to revisit as well, for sure. It reminded me that you don't necessarily need to have much to give a lot, if that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, my first experience of you with Scarborough, which I've watched a couple of times now. Yeah. I, I mean, I could really just gush about it for hours. I won't. Oh, I mean, I have hours if you really need to. <laughs> okay, excellent. Cool. Gush away. <laughs> so for anybody that missed... Spro and I's discussion last episode. Scarborough I'm so is a. Teasing you, love. I know, I know. I will gush. I will, and I'm not scared. Uh, <laughs> so Spro and I watched a lot of international films from 2021 for this last episode. You know, we went around all the different countries, and we were like, "This is what they chose. This is what they chose." We watched them all, but we felt that Scarborough really rose above the rest. It's so realistic, really more so than any other stylistically similar film that I've seen for 20 years. It's been called a micro-budget masterpiece, and if you see it and you have a modicum of appreciation for film, you'll probably agree. It's just top to bottom, an expertly made film. How did you hear about this production and what led you to being cast as as Miss Hina? So Rich and Shasha were uh, discussing 
you know, who would be best fit for all the different characters. And they wanted to find people that they felt uh, embodied the characters in some way as well. And so I think the conversation that they had was to find the balance for Miss Hina between somebody who could command a room, somebody who could, um, you know, exude a certain level of confidence in the fa- in courage in the face of the system, and also somebody who could bring a silliness and a lightness to the character. And uh, this is what they told me. And they said that they thought a comedian might be a good fit. And so they found me and I was in Australia on tour. And I got the email and I was like, Oh, Muslim hijabi woman. <laughs> okay, here we go. You know, because it's usually like the very stereotypical bullshit of like, she's scared running from her husband. And I'm like, I'm not interested. And then I read the character. And when I saw silly, you know, when I saw that she was silly, I've never seen a hijabi woman being written as a character who can also be silly. Um, because we associate things like a hijab with like somebody who's op- oppressed, reserved, conservative. Definitely not silly. Totally. But why not, right? So this for me was like, okay, so this is like a legitimate, like fleshed, fleshed out human <laughs> with layers and not just, you know, uh, this one layer deep version of what people see, you know? And these are things that I talk about in my comedy, Lee. Like this is why I talk about this. I tell people my story is more than skin deep. So for me, like this is something that really fuels me in the work that I do. And so I was really drawn to this character. So I put a lot of effort into the audition because I was really drawn to the story and this character. I heard back from them. They said, we loved your audition. I said, great. They said, we want to see you in person. I said, I'm in Australia for another month. (laughs) They said, we'll wait. I said, thank God. Wow. And so as soon as I got back, I went in and Shasha says to me, uh, we were also really drawn to you because you're improvising background and we need somebody who can uh, roll with it because we're working with kids and we don't want to follow the script precisely um, because they won't be able to naturally act that way. So we want somebody who can lead the scenes and don't worry about the words as much. Just find a way to get there. When I heard that, I said, okay, so all I need to do is bring these feelings to life. So in that second audition, we're going through the script and we went through the moments and then she just turned to me as Jane and started coming at me. And I stood there and I took it and I told her off in that moment. And it worked. I saw it in her face in that moment. It worked. I saw Rich's face in that moment. It worked. We got there. And so that is how we filmed Scarborough as well. That makes it even cooler. Yeah, it's really cool, huh? That makes it even fucking cooler. Wow. I remember trying to articulate this very poorly on the day that we showed at TIFF, the opening uh, night, the debut. Uh, The premiere. God, I don't know the language of film. The premiere, the night, the premiere. Opening Uh, night. I know what you meant. Thank you. Uh, we were at TIFF and then we had a Q&A afterwards and I wasn't expecting to be on stage. They brought up all of the like the head cast and the directors and producer and uh, anyways, we were all up on stage. And then at one point they asked about how everything felt so real that they were watching and doing comments on that. And somebody was like, Miss Hina? And I was like, yeah, it was just that those were real feelings. Like when you saw us feeling those things, that was that joy was joy. And when, you know, when you saw the hard parts, that was Catherine's excellent writing and we uh, used it. And I was like, I couldn't articulate what I tried, was trying to say in that moment. I was full of so much emotion after watching the film for the first time. And, you know, just being like watching Laura. I remember I turned to her, her dad character, right? And I'm like, I just turned to him and I'm like, homie, don't even look at me right now. Don't even look at me right now. I can't even look at your face. I'm so mad. You know, because it just, it was so personal to be watching this film. So there were too many emotions for me to articulate in that moment. But I will say now that the beauty of Scarborough is that it was all real as much as we could. You saw community. We were a community. Every person was made to feel important in their work. 
every person's job was valued. The directors as well, you know, uh, they are documentary filmmakers. So, you know, when you think about their approach to how they were going to, you know, bring in people who kind of embodied the characters to a certain degree, you know, when we say that, like, also realize that, like, you know, for example, Laura, she's not a traumatized young girl. She has a beautiful family and she's such a happy little kid you can't wipe the smile off her face until you go rolling amazing amazing that girl seems damaged yeah legitimately she's such a brilliant actress and so like all of this you know the detail in the casting and the way that they filmed it you know they made sure to stay very authentic in every aspect of it like you know you see that that is scarborough there's no sets the design of everything was done so that it really does show the reality of things, right? I was so taken with the relentless positivity of Miss Hina. Again, Miss Hina is the character that you play, yes. the one that runs the community literacy program. She is an exemplary teacher and a lion-hearted humanist. She's essentially the kind of educator that anyone would want for their child. But she's also the kind of teacher that most new teachers set out to be until the frustration sets in and the burnout beats them down. And you played her to those points. And the frustration tried to creep in and the burnout. And Miss Hina is like, nah, nah, nah. I just, it's so beautiful to watch. And it it really... COVID was tough with the kids and I I phoned it in a lot over the last year, especially when we came back together as a group and I, I have felt very guilty. About, anyway, that's on me. That's You're not my therapist. No, but- no, but that's a, that's a legit thing. And that's the beauty of what the, these stories do is they connect with us and they show us things totally. about ourselves. So that's important and legit. So how did you prepare for this role? Did you, did you do any research? Did you speak with educators or did you find that it was kind of already at your fingertips? It was inside of me. I've never worked as an educator, but I do understand the patience that it must take. I do understand what I would have wanted from an educator myself. I also understand how working against a system can be a a huge source of frustration. Um, I also understand what it means to have to reach for strength in the face of hardship. Uh, I also know what it means to get to the point where you look at something and you say, I have to make a decision. I can either let this affect my spirit or not affect my spirit. I know who it is I want to be. I know it is what I want to put out in the world. I know that it is not always going to be easy to stand for it or it's not always going to be well received. But do I have the endurance to keep going and keep this spirit? Because the thing is, is that Miss Hina's character, you know, there was so much that I that resonated with me in her. And it didn't have to be that I was a teacher, you know? I worked as a flight attendant for over a decade. I talk about this in my comedy about how sometimes people come and yell at you for no reason. But I would try to remember that even though that person is doing this, there are so many other wonderful people out here that I'm connecting to. And I would shift focus because I wanted to make sure that I didn't let this person crush my spirit. Because all these people and I, we could still carry on. Sometimes when I worked and things were not going well in the airline and I saw that, you know, they were treating the staff poorly or they were treating the passengers poorly. Like it's not fair. And I would be upset for myself or be upset for my passengers. And I'd look at this system and I'd be like, this is this is bullshit. But then I'd understand that this is greater than just this airline. This is the whole system of capitalism and greed that has unfortunately seeped into almost everything that we do. 
So when I see that and I see that the system, I, I can't take it personally. I have to remember it is the whole system. So just as Miss Hina had to see this and see that Jane is coming at her, but it's, just, it's not just Jane, it's this whole system. And so me fighting Jane doesn't make any sense. Me standing up and standing for what I believe in, absolutely, and I will always do that. But I cannot fight Jane. That's not going to solve the problem. So I have to find a way to exist in the system because it's not just Jane, it's the whole system. So that's where I related to her. In the moments where I talk to the children about loss, I've, I've had loss when I was young. I gave them what I hoped somebody would have given me. You know, I didn't lose a friend, but I lost. And so I sat there with those kids in that moment and I felt it. You know, we talked about it from a place of honesty. And so Miss Hina, for me, I saw Miss Hina as the person that perhaps I want to be and the person I'm working towards being. And so that's what I brought to that character. You just named two of your, I mean, you have about five or six wonderful scenes, but two of the best of those five or six are where you stand up to Jane and, uh, where you comfort the kids after Laura's passing. Just dynamite. You know that scene where I give the children each a letter? You shake Laura's hand, or you pinky promise with Laura, and then you're holding the H and you tilt your hand and this close-up is on your guys' hands. Oh my God, that scene makes me want to cry every time yeah. I watch it. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? It's Wonderful. It's such a beautiful moment. All of those moments in this film will forever stay with me, you know? And there's so much credit to every single person involved. It was so, like, I knew people were rooting for Miss Hina because of this book. And they wanted to see somebody that just made them feel seen. And I understand that. And so it's, yeah, for me, I think that the character was written so beautifully that there was dimension enough for somebody to actually see her whole person. And then I worked with these amazing kids and these amazing actors that all brought themselves and, you know, everybody brought that real energy to this um, film. And so for sure fucking killed it as Messina. I for sure did. I killed yeah, it. Yeah, you did. I know. I, I mean, did. you but just- we all you, killed it, yo. Like, look You at did. That. I mean, there's no wonder it won Best Achievement in Casting. Yeah. Canadian, Canadian I mean- it won eight awards. Should have been nine, if you ask me. But <laughs> I, I, was, I, I thank you for for your compliment. I wish the Academy would would put best casting as an Oscar because it's something that should be, yeah, one hundred percent acknowledged. Mm, absolutely, um, it's the, the it's a vision, right? But you just said it. Those three principal kids, Liam, Anna, and Essence, they don't feel like they're acting. So Scarborough is an important film to me because it depicts the wonderful and the frustrating and the tragic aspects of being an educator, servicing low SES stakeholders. I've taught those kids, I've gone to funerals, and I'm still finding out about students of mine that have passed. But what's great about this movie is that it goes further to illustrate the difficult and the distressing circumstances that these kids endure when they aren't at school. So that was my takeaway. What do you hope is the lasting impression that Scarborough has on viewers? Well, certainly what you um, just said is very, very valid and very much, I think, a great reflection on the intention of this film. Um, I also think that there's um, a really good reminder of what hope means and community means, you know, and for me, that really is what resonated the most for me in this film. 
because I feel like oftentimes whenever, you know, you've heard the expressions like poverty porn and stuff where, you know, certain, you know, underserved populations are depicted as reasons to cry and people to pity and feel sorry for. And that's, I think, another part that really resonated with me because I felt when I was young, I hated people feeling sorry for me. So I'd always pretend that things were better than they were. And the thing is, is that I think that people should be able to show hardship without us pitying them. Because in the end, you see that these are full people who have community, who have moments of laughter and love, just like everybody else, and that there's a hopefulness to them. And perhaps feeling sorry for somebody is taking that hope away rather than hoping with them. You know what I mean? Um, I love that. I love that. Yeah. So for me, I, I think that there's a really important, and you, we see it, we see it at the end of this film. You know, people always ask me, they're like, so Scarborough, I'm like, yeah, brace yourself for some tissues because all my people want to see it and they're used to me making them laugh. And I'm like, yo, brace yourself. And like, oh, am I going to feel sad at the end? I'm like, actually, no, you're going to feel hopeful and happy at the end, but you will have moments. And if you don't, then don't talk to me because you don't have a heart. You know <laughs> what I mean? inside. Right? You're dead inside and to me. Go work on your shit. You know what I like? But yeah, but it is. And I think that's a really beautiful part of the film. And I think that, you know, that's very much what my character represented was the hope. Yeah. And that's, I, th I mean, not just because I'm an educator, but because of that, that is exactly why I gravitated because she is, Hina is so unsinkable. She's unflappable. She cannot be flapped. She's flappable, but she's she's got that strength. You played her to a plum, and I I am your lifelong follower henceforth. Oh, Leslie, thank you, man. I, anything that you do, I'm on board. I'm just honestly, I'm so flattered that people connect with it. I'll, I'll tell you one thing though. I, I do have a hard time sometimes uh, making sense of this world. You know, I have uh, so many folks that reach out to me and thank me for this film. And they say that they've worked in, you know, early childhood education, for example. And uh, that must be so rewarding. Yes. But also, I got to embody this character of a woman who spends her life helping people. And the people that are that woman are thanking me for how I portrayed her. But why are we not valuing them more? They are the ones that are actually doing the work that I showed you on that screen. You know, they are pouring their love and their heart and they're every day going against a system that wants to crush their spirit and finding strength without resources to be able to actually help the people that are part of these communities that we are also part of. You know, so for me, that's where I kind of look at it. And I'm like, I feel like the real credit goes to the actual Miss Hinas, you know, and I feel grateful and honored to have been able to brought her to life, you know? Um, we were told by Mr. Casey that you found sort of a niche in the production of the film where you kind of acted not only when the camera was rolling, but when the camera wasn't rolling, you sort of took on the persona of caretaker for the kids in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just naturally who I am, though. I, I like love kids and I like Play. So for me, it wasn't really that I was taking on the role of anything. It's just I was just being myself. I'm 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 somebody who really loves to bring people together. That's just naturally who I am, and I like to have a good time. That's personality, and also the culture that I come from. You know, Tanzanians are all about like you know everybody comes together. We're very collectivistic culture, and it's like if somebody's you know if you're you're in a home and we're all sitting together at the table, and somebody sits away, every single person at the table is going to yell at them to come sit with us right and so i would come into you know i'd come into the the set in the morning and uh 
I'm not a morning person. Uh, and we'd start really early filming. So I'd go there and I'd sit down and I'd be like, can we have some music? So I'd start putting on my music and I'd have some Afrobeats playing in the background. And then we'd start doing like the makeup. But then the makeup was done in the same room as the food was served. Uh, it was just this one big hall. And so as people were grabbing their food, I'd be joking around with everybody and stuff. And so we, we started to create like a real fun vibe on set as well. But I mean, I, I, I'm saying this, but it wasn't just me. Like we all wanted that. We all wanted this sense of community on set as well, I think. And so we all contributed in our own ways. And yeah, with the kids, like, yeah, on on set, but like when the cameras are not rolling also, that was for sure. We would play, we would have fun, we would play games, um, which made it easier because that relationship, I guess, that we established didn't feel like it had to be turned on when the cameras were on. It was already just there. And now we were just trying to you know, get this scene in order wherever our, our mission was for this particular scene would take us, but we didn't have to turn on that connection. We didn't have to turn on that that mode of yeah, we just had a we had a good time. <laughs> we had a good time. It was <laughs> when it was like I said, it was we were doing this even after we finished filming. Like I remember at um this was actually I gotta say probably one of the cutest moments and the best compliments I've had about this film. So at the party that we had after TIFF, we had a, a cookout in Scarborough and this is where all the kids were also invited as as well as like the adults and the extended families and stuff so everybody was just coming through and at one point I don't know I was running around in the grass with the kids and stuff and I don't know what we were playing some silly game that we probably invented and then we sat down like all kind of huffing and puffing and one of the kids turns and she goes so what are you going to do after now? And I was like, oh, I'm not really sure. And she goes, uh, can you come be a substitute teacher in my school? Oh, my God. <laughs> and then all of the kids started fighting over whose school I was going to come and be a teacher in. <laughs> and I was just looking at this and I was like, oh, my God, I did it. I did it. I'm, I am Miss Hina. I did it. Like, this is it. Like, the kids are fighting about whose school I'm going to come teach at. I should go, that, that was it. They were like, can you come be a teacher at my school? And then they came up with the solution of if I was a substitute teacher, then I could be a teacher at everybody's school. That's right. That's what it was. It was just so cute. I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I made it. Forget any kind of nominations or any kind of anything to come. Like, this is it. I got the kids' approval, you know? You still got time, probably, too. <laughs> just go in and surprise them. Honestly, how cool would that be? They'd freak out. I'd be so, <laughs> I'd have so much fun. You pretty much answer it. I do, like, I am, I love the documentary style of filmmaking and whatnot of just putting you guys in a room and turning on the camera. Like, how much different was it for this production than any other film sets that you've been on of, like, you know, blocking and hitting your mark and saying action on this line and cutting like was there a lot more freedom on the Scarborough set to kind of like find your character and then find your relationship and the camera just moves around you listen yes there was a lot of freedom in that but this was my first film so I I don't have a lot to compare it to to be honest with you I mean a lot of this other stuff that I've done has been very short form sketch comedy that I filmed commercials you know so I've not had an experience that I can say, oh, on the last film I was in, that was my first film. But I will say that I didn't feel the camera on me most of the time. And I think that that was really so helpful. And I think that that's a lot to do with the style of filming. And then also, I just tend to block out and tunnel vision. So I think that combining our methods, I think that that really helped. But what I really did enjoy was that the direction I was given was given with so much trust 
And it allowed me to trust myself to lead the scenes uh, because primarily a lot of my scenes were with the kids. We couldn't stick to dialogue. We couldn't say, okay, line A, line B, line A, line B, and go back and forth. That's not going to work with kids. It's not going to come out naturally. So instead it was, okay, here's the scene and here's where we need to go with the scene. Aliyah, take us there. And it was like, okay, sure. Yeah, great. I can do this. And it's like my first time on a film. And I'm like, I, you know, but because it was given with so much trust, I felt like I could really trust myself for it as well. And I was able to go, okay, well, what are we trying to feel right now in this moment? Rather than what am I trying to say? And I could really, you know, lean into my my improvising skills and just, you know, my whatever natural life skills I've developed to be able to read a room and read a kid and be able to see where they're going. And, and I could just uh, allow myself, I guess I'm, I'm looking for the words right now, I guess I could allow myself to really immerse into that moment and forget anything that was given to me. Do you know what I mean? I would feel an immense amount of pressure. <laughs> I, the fact that this is like your first, like, there's not a false beat in this film. And I, it's like a perfect, I think what I loved about watching Scarborough the most is that from the moment it starts, like you realize that everybody that is involved in the film from the kids to the adults to the people behind the scenes, like it was like a perfect combination of everybody's skills coming together for Scarborough mm -hmm. with the documentary style and the camera, like right up in your face and like the minimalistic music and just everything is like calm and quiet. And it's, it's you and the camera moves to what you're focused on. And I just want to compliment you on how well you did in your first film, because this is amazing. It is absolutely amazing and was breathtaking to both. Like I was reading the book this weekend and I remember the feeling that I was getting watching him point to the picture of crackers and the elation that comes over both you and his mom's face at the very end. And it was just like, <laughs> oh, I wanted to watch the movie all over again, just reading the book. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny that you bring up that scene. And also, thank you for that kind compliment. I'm happy that it brought that feeling to you. But I've had a few people ask me, they're like, did you bump into that chair on purpose? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> we were literally just but that is like it's so funny to me because that is classic me when I get too excited I knock things over you know and so it really but it, again like all of these moments that we were able to capture was because I didn't have to worry that I bumped into the chair and I'm going to throw off the script and I can't say the following line I knew I could just go with it I knew I could yes and any moments in that scene and that it would be okay. And if it wasn't, we would just reshoot it. But I was allowed, I was given that permission. I was given that room. I was given that breath to be able to just exist. Uh, and as you said, every single person contributed in a very special way to this film. And I think that that's, I know that the directors and producers are, have very generously given us all so much credit for the work that we've done. And I think that everybody should take credit for the work they've done, certainly. But that vision to be able to bring folks together and say, you know, I'm going to trust these actors with less experience because I think that they have what it takes. Uh, we're going to make sure that every single person's um, feels important, feels their work is valued on set. And if anybody brings anything up, you know, for example, you know, when somebody felt uncomfortable about something, like it was tended to and it was made sure to be made to a priority because it was important that this person in that moment, you know, felt that they were looked after. And so those little things there, I think, you know, we often forget the value of uh, valuing people 
And so rather than looking at this as, you know, it was an indie film with a small budget and there's so much that wasn't afforded to this, this set. Uh, it's like, look at all the value that came out of just making sure that every single person was recognized for their work. Every person was appreciated for their work. There was a sense of community. There was a sense of, you know, so everybody felt that their jobs, they wanted to do the best that they could. You know, I wanted to bring my 100%. Everybody wanted to bring their 100%. And everybody saw that everybody was doing that. And I think that if we look at filmmaking in in that way and, and just creativity in general in that way, rather than, you know, what was the budget for that film, we'll be able to make a lot of stuff that has a lot more value than whatever we can pay for, for, you know, fun side effects and explosions and I don't know. Anyways, I, I, that's, you're, I'm still, you're, you're speaking our language. 100%. Yeah, okay, we, good. Uh, I'm, like, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I hope you're with <laughs> no, me. No, 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 no. We're, um, we're not an, we're not an anti Marvel, anti star Wars podcast, no. but we are, we're getting pretty sick of the saturation and uh, it's movies like Scarborough. I hate the phrase, but so refreshing. Yeah. Uh, well, and, it, and more, more of a connection, right? Like it feels like real storytelling, doesn't it? It feels like real absolutely. connection. And I think that that's almost like, can you imagine if they had more money to make Scarborough? It perhaps wouldn't have gone the same at all. Like I think it was a gift that there was like a, a tighter budget. There was a lot of creativity that came into how to put this together and make it work. Right. The making of Scarborough with the low budget and everything like that made you feel more like Scarborough. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. It was representational. Like because there was a struggle of budget behind the scenes, it translated to the struggle of the budget on camera. You know, it because mm-hmm. there was a sense of community behind the scenes, it translated to the sense of community on camera. And a sense of community was needed, you know, because we needed to band together and figure out how to make this happen when we didn't have the stuff to make this happen. You know, I, all the little things, you know, people still can't believe it when I tell them that that those were my clothes that I was wearing on scene. They're like, what? You didn't have a wardrobe budget. I'm like, no, we didn't have a wardrobe budget. But again, I think that that was really the beauty of this film. And I, I hope that it also motivates, you know, aspiring filmmakers who have great stories to tell, but feel that they don't have the means to do it, that there are ways to be able to create without having to break the bank, break, break the piggy the bank. bank. Exactly. I was curious just because we're down here in the States and getting a hold of this, of this movie, this wonderful movie is difficult. And I hope very sincerely that Shasha and Rich are trying to figure out ways to bring it to one of the many streaming services. Because I, I told all of my friends about this movie and they kind of just go, okay. And they nod and they're like, where can I see it? I'm like, well, but I, wa- I wonder, do you think Americans would receive this film well? I think so for sure. I think so for sure. I think that as much as it is, you know, in this film, you know, to show representation of underrepresented racialized folks, and it's, you know, the stories, I guess, tie a lot into the cultures of the different families. I don't think that it's something that is... I think it boils down to the human experience and, you know, the, the ideas of, you know, wanting to take care of your, your family and you're, you know, trying to figure out how to make ends meet and trying to figure out how to give the best you can to your kids and understanding that there's an innocence about children that should be protected, that we don't always have the opportunity to, to protect them the way that we want to when we don't have the finances to be able to just give them what their neighbor has or we don't have the ability to be able to, you know, get a, a babysitter. We got to drag them into work and let them see certain things that 
maybe they're not ready to see. I think that the stories that exist in Scarborough are something that would connect with everyone. I have no doubt that this film would be successful anywhere in the world, really, to be honest with you. And I don't say that because I'm trying to, you know, rah-rah the film that I was in. I really do believe that there's a beauty in this in this story that it boils down essentially to the human experiences. And it, it needs the decoration of Scarborough. It needs the flavors of all the different cultures to bring that authentic feel to it. Uh, from the way that the story was written by the storyteller it was written from. But in the end, I, I mean, I had moments where I connected with Bing's mom when she was struggling to be able to give him what he needed and give him the support that he needed in the way that this particular kid needed. And I don't come from that background. It has nothing to do with my upbringing. But it was just understanding that mother-child experience, which, let's face it, every person can understand that one, you know? Well, I think you did, like, such a wonderful job just playing the teacher that, like, I saw myself in you. And, you know, we're not on video right now, but I am a very pasty, short, blonde, Caucasian male, you know? But I was like, (laughs) oh, man, I've been in her shoes. The parents that will just walk in and, and hate you just based off of the way that you look. Or they don't like the way that you're interacting with their child and you just have to, you know, walk across that minefield slowly. But I've been I've been telling everybody in my building, in my educational buildings, I've been like, you you have to see this movie. This movie is is us and it's our interactions with these kids and what we want for these kids with what we have to work with. So I do think it would resonate with a lot of people. There was I was reading because, of course, I went on Netflix and I was like, okay, I'm requesting Scarborough 2021 for you guys to add to your library. But then also I was going around and just leaving reviews wherever I could. There was like one review for the movie. It was just one of those like how I'm a person being like, another movie where white people are the enemy. And I was like, there's not too many. To me, this is like a better version of Crash, which we already took that Oscar away for being trite. But I mean, like Scarborough gets deeper in where people will, you know, prejudge each other based off of prior experiences. And everybody is just trying to love their children in their own way. Some of the ways are right or some of the ways are wrong. And when it comes to Corey's character, like he just has the wrong opinion about things, raises Laura with a with a tough hand, but you don't doubt that he doesn't love her. It's just a weird, it's a good think piece, I guess. Yeah, totally. And that's a very interesting point that you make about how, like, do we still feel that Corey loves his daughter, despite the fact that he's, you know, chosen this path and that he's lost in his own way? I understand the sensitivity of people and I understand how it could be seen that way. But really, you're missing the message of this film if you're seeing it that way. And first of all, I mean, can we say how many films where dark folk have been portrayed as the bad guys? So, like, let's just relax Mm -hmm. everybody, you know? (laughs) Um, And I don't think that anybody ever was in this film pointing and saying white is bad. It wasn't an attack on anyone, but it was flipping the script in a sense of saying that this is how it feels on the other side. And the perspective came from the perspective of Scarborough. And in Scarborough, the folk that live there, the racialized folk that live there do feel a certain oppression from the system. And so there has to be an understanding and a realization of whose perspective is this coming from. And I think that it was to see the contrast in in the way that Corey and the the culture of, you know, family uh, exists differently in, in the culture of, you know, white Canadian families 
when you're coming from a culture of, you know, Filipinos or coming from a culture of like Indigenous folks where there is a real collectivistic community household feel. I don't know what it was like, you know, growing up for you, for example, but I know when I was growing up, like I remember at one point I got invited to go and have dinner at a friend's place. And I thought that they didn't like me. I thought that the family didn't like me because they didn't feed me when I was there. And for me, that was really shocking because anybody that I'd whose house I'd gone to, I was always fed. And we always fed everybody that came into our house. And that was just part of our culture. And so it was really different to see it on the other side where I was like, why are they not feeding us? And you could see the themes of food. And you could see the, the ideas of that existing in the Scarborough culture and the things that overlap there. And that was something that I think that, you know, when Corey refused the food, when Corey refused to take the food, and it was like, he came from a very individualistic society where it was like, no, we don't need this community. I don't need to rely on other people, and especially not you because you're brown skin and you have a hijab. I think that that was necessary for people to understand the other side of things. But I think it was trying to show how folks that come from racialized communities and come from different cultures where there is a very collectivistic culture and they do come from this sense of, you know, like banding together as a community and trying to support each other in any way that they can. And they come into this culture in Canada or in other countries and other societies where there's not necessarily that same sense of, you know, collectivist culture. There's not that same idea of like community comes together to share, especially food, uh, that it can feel like a little bit isolating and it can feel a little bit like a rejection and it can feel a little bit like, why is this person not wanting to be inclusive? And so I think that those were important moments that they showed in that film. And for people to to not be okay in, in, in recognizing that there's a version of the story from the other side that needs to be shared. I think that that's, it's unfortunate because that defensiveness will stop them from being able to actually see what the story is and see what the messages are and, and connect with the humanity of the film because they're still just defensive about race. I'm with you, I, I think. And I never even considered that too about Corey's character, the the cultural nuance there. I just assumed that when, you know, you, every time Miss Hina tried to to help him, his response was, you know, partially out of racial prejudice, but then also out of just pig-headed pride and being like, well, no, fuck that. I don't, I don't need any help from anybody. I would love for Americans to embrace this movie, you know, but we... I don't know, man. We got some got some issues to deal with down here. I, th- I I would love to show this this film to people that I love and care about, but I'm afraid, especially when you get to the ending um, and you have this kid who is figuring out his own sexuality and being encouraged to go on stage and maybe do something that certain sects of uh, American population might. I don't know, scoff at. Yeah, it would it would worry me to show this to some people, but I think they would absolutely miss the point and instead fall back on that defensiveness. We're such a country of headline screamers. Like we just like to scream headlines at each other. And what right. Ms. Kanani, what I think you just beautifully said was that the problems are just so much more complicated than what we present. And to very much understand where somebody else is coming from, you have to walk a long time in their shoes to figure out like where this one thing is coming from. That's exactly it. There's just too much complexity for us to ever feel like we can have a, I mean, how many times have you been misunderstood by the people that know you the best? 
right? Oh, Lee misunderstands me all the time. Well, right. <laughs> I was just going to say that about you. <laughs> and there you go. And there you have it on record. You see, like, it's really like, I mean, for us to be able to communicate, you know, these stories and to be able to tell these stories, if people are going to come in already with their, you know, shields up and they're already on the defense, we're never going to be able to communicate these stories. And and the whole point of stories like this is to be able to share and to be able to have a better understanding of each other and to be able to really like, again, and I keep saying this, like it boils down to the stories of like, you know, humanity. And that's what will transcend in the end is when we can actually wash away all that other stuff and see that, oh, okay, like I come from this background. I come from this culture. I come from this experience, this life, this financial ability, stability, whatever, this career, this and yet, and yet, despite that, on the other side of the world, with somebody with a completely different circumstance and a completely different story, I connect somehow with those moments, those feelings. And that's where I feel that Scarborough really had a beautiful impact was in the feelings and the emotions that they were able to tap into of people. But you know, in order to get to that, you can't have your, your guard up. Allow yourself to be immersed in the story. Let yourself feel it all the way through. Try to understand it from somebody else's perspective. Put yourself in the shoes of Bing's mom or Miss Hina for a moment, rather than putting yourself in your shoes watching this film. And in doing so, we'll be able to actually have conversations that will make us realize that we are all so much more connected and that the human experience is the same when you take off all of the other stuff. But yeah, it is It is complicated. It is complicated to, to be able to share those experiences. And you're right, there are going to be people, Lee, that, that take it out of context. But there will be a lot of folks just like the two of you that won't. And I think that that's the impact that I'd rather focus on is the people that will understand and will be touched by this film and it will change something in them, you know, even subconsciously change something in them uh, in the way that they look at folks who come from, you know, these underserved communities that don't have the same chance in life that are trying to just figure out a way to get by. And or it'll touch folks that are from those underserved communities that are realize that there is real beauty in their communities, despite the fact that they don't have all the luxuries that that are afforded to other people, you know? And and so, yeah, I just, I, I do think that there's a lot of value in this film. And I think that that value will be seen by a lot of people if given the chance, for sure. Well, I sure hope that Netflix listens to you, Spro. Or I hope somebody picks this up because uh, I would love to be able to see it again and again. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure they're dealing with contracts and everything right now of... I have no idea. I couldn't I couldn't comment on that. I really wish I, I, I had a better idea, but I really don't know at all. Um, the last that I checked with Shasha, I think that they said that it was in the hands of the distributors now, right? The the folks that bought the rights for the film in Canada. So okay. maybe message them <laughs> and ask them what they're doing. I was thinking about, I have a meeting with Netflix coming up in two weeks and it's on my list of things to be like, hey, what's going on with Scarborough 2021? That's beautiful. Like, well, here's a question. You talked about making a human male vomit from laughing so hard? I did. I did do that. I'm interested. <laughs> I'm interested in that story. <laughs> I was with this person and we were laughing. We were laughing. We were having a really good time. And you know when you're just riffing with somebody and just like talking shit? Uh, and you know, sometimes it can just get 
like it just you know when you just get silly where you just cannot stop laughing like yep. it, yes. it like takes over your body and that was what was going on like you know have you ever tickled somebody like when you're a kid or they tickled you and you're like i i can't laugh anymore i'm like laughed <laughs> out like stop right like like you're laughing but your mouth is open but there's no sound coming out yeah 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 and he was just laughing so hard and then he goes oh yeah he's like stop i'm gonna throw up and i of course thought he was just being dramatic oh my god so i kept riffing and i don't even remember what we were joking about and then he just he literally um yeah uh barfed <laughs> barfed <laughs> but like ran to the bathroom in time for it thank god because i was Excellent. like i would have felt obligated to clean that up you know what i mean because wow. uh, i was warned <laughs> currently you're performing in a comedy show that you wrote called where you from from yeah tell us a little bit about that uh so it is a comedy show it's a one-hour show where i talk about things like identity and belonging but in the heart of it really what i'm trying to say is that we are all the same and we all belong together and i know this to be true and it's cheesy as hell uh but that's what that's what's in my heart uh so i speak it uh but i do it in a way where we get to laugh about you know things and i make dick jokes and i make you know jokes about like you know whatever right and it's and it's fun for me especially when people have seen me as miss hina and now i'm on stage talking about things and they're like what is happening right now you know and it's, it's a lot of fun and it's uh but it's it's honest it's honest and it's you know i i stayed true to my voice the entire time knowing that that's not necessarily the most easiest way to package and sell yourself uh, and i talk about that in my show uh was like the you know the fact that like i i've encountered you know a lot of moments through my journey as an artist where folks try to tell me what my voice is supposed to be and I uh, but I know what my voice is and uh, so I I found ways to give myself the opportunity to craft it uh, without influence and so that's why I'm so proud of it now you know I put so much love into this show so much honesty so much truth and I really am so proud of it I talk about things that I feel are important to me but I do it in a way where I feel that people are able to listen and absorb comedy is such a beautiful tool I love making people laugh and I and I think that we uh, can have conversations, sometimes tough conversations, that can be made so much easier with just like uh, you know just sprinkles of and more than sprinkles I should say of comedy. Uh, so the last few months I've I've just uh, been back to touring since the world opened up again. So um, I I was able to come out here for the Melbourne Festival. I think I was I spoke with you just before I left for that if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not sure the timelines. Anyways. I came out to Australia, did a couple festivals, the Melbourne Festival and Sydney Festival as well. The comedy festivals out here, came back to Canada, did the uh, Toronto Fringe, which I got to say, bringing my show home was so wonderful. You know, I've been playing out in Australia a lot because quite frankly, there's just a lot more uh, opportunity for me to be able to perform out here. It's more lucrative. And so, you know, I, I had to, especially after the pandemic, come out and and restock my funds as an uh, artist who wasn't able to get as much work as one would have hoped over the pandemic. And then, yeah, bringing it back to Toronto after all these uh, years of waiting, because I was supposed to bring it in 2020. And then, of course, we know what happened. It was really, it felt like such a great homecoming, guys. Like, I was just so happy. I went on to Edinburgh, did the Fringe there, got really sick in Edinburgh, ended up in the hospital, which was terrible. Uh and uh, and then I decided to take uh, things seriously with my health because I've been sort of running on an empty tank for a while and not really paying attention to the body signals that I've been getting. 
I ran away and I went to India for a month and sat in an ashram and got Ayurvedic treatment and, and learned how to do proper yoga and meditation daily, which has been really great, uh, life-changing, no doubt. Uh, and now I'm back at it. Now I'm on the road telling dick jokes, but doing yoga every morning. So it's, you know, it's a balance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's good. Yeah, I'm in Perth now. I really love this city. The city is really, really welcoming to me. I really enjoy it a lot. I'll definitely be back here next year, but I'll be heading back to Toronto fairly soon. I'm looking forward to it. Come back to my city, survive some of the winter. I have a picture of the world up in front of me and I'm just going from place to place with my eyes of all the places you've been and just in awe and jealous of your world travel. <laughs> I've, I've been to Toronto once, but uh, that's about as far as I've been. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel really very lucky to be able to see as much of the world as I do. I think though it's, it's something that I push for, right? Because I really want it. And I, I've always been like that. I was a flight attendant before I was a comedian. I uh, I, I like to be able to um, experience the, the cultures in this way, like very much just immersing myself into different places. It's always been kind of, because I moved around so much growing up, I think it just naturally came to me, this rhythm. But you can do it if you want boys you can do it i really believe in it i really believe in it you can find a way <laughs> i wish there was some way for me to see clips but uh maybe someday yeah definitely most definitely i uh i'm looking forward to actually touring in the states uh at some point too i will let you know if i'm ever in your area but uh but yeah no i do think that it's uh you know i mean eventually it's gonna be a comedy special baby so <laughs> you know that's but the hope right that is no that's the plan <laughs> this is gonna happen it's gonna happen i uh I always find a way if I'm if I'm if I'm gonna do something. But I, I do I do really I get so excited. People ask me if I get nervous before I get on stage and I don't. I get so excited, especially with the show nice. to share it with people. I'm so excited when I get on stage to tell people because I know they're gonna have a good time. Do you have any anecdotes from the comedy clubs? I'd really love it if you had a story of a time or two that you just dominated a heckler. I love those stories. You know, I <laughs> I don't get heckled much. To be honest with you, I've so rarely been heckled. The one worst heckle I ever had was when I was, buddy, I was performing for Canadian's top comic and I was so new to the game to be in this, like that I got into the top comic series like finals or whatever the competition, the semifinals or whatever it was. I can't remember. Uh, but I like I got into it. I'm there and there's like all these like veteran comedians there. Like people have been doing this that I look up to. They've been doing this for 20 years, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing here? And so I'm so nervous already. And then I got on stage and now you have to know that these particular shows, the host says this is being live recorded. This is part of a com competition. Please do not speak or interrupt any of the comedians this is being taped for tv all of this stuff is said beforehand this doesn't normally happen at a club and i'm saying to you i rarely have gotten heckled but the one time was of course the time uh. they were told not to say anything and i wish i had been more poised or handled it better like i was poised but i wish i i wish i'd been quicker to handle it because I thought of the best comebacks after I got off stage, of course. But this woman, she so I have this joke, and I, I, I this is a story that I tell about how when I was younger, I'd get teased because of my last name Kanani rhymes with, and this woman before anybody could even, she just starts going Punani, Punani, <laughs> Puna, and she just keeps on saying, it. "I'm like, it is a musical word, isn't it?" I'm trying to move on, and she goes. So this one time in my class, one of the kids asked me what Punani meant. She was a teacher. She starts telling me a story while I'm on stage. And legitly, I was like, oh, yeah, kids ask funny questions. Uh, you know, this one 
time this guy in Montreal also didn't understand. And I had to explain to him and I went into the address a bit, but I wish I had just been like, can I ask a question? When your children in your class ask you questions, do they put their hand up or just interrupt you when you're talking? I have the microphone. People would have died laughing, but I didn't think of it then. And I was too nervous because I knew I only had five minutes and I was like not supposed to go over time. It's taped for TV and I was, you know, worried about a billion other things. And oh man, buddy, everybody, all the comedians were like, oh, you handled it well. You didn't even let it phase you. And I was like, oh, it phased me on the inside. <laughs> it phased me. On. And that's the thing you can always tell when you're phased on the inside, you'll still keep talking and keeping your cool, but your energy's off. So it was very funny. But aside from that, I've honestly, I've not really ever been heckled except for when I've gone in asking for it. Like when I used to do the danger room in Toronto, which was a room where they were supposed to heckle you. Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. I was good at it, too. I would uh, heckle them back. I grew up shit talking. I grew up talking shit. You know, that's how I grew up. That's how I got funny. We used to talk shit. My cousins and I we used to talk shit. I was like this like little kid and I'd hang out with all these like dudes that were much older than me, not because I wanted to necessarily hang out with them, but because I wanted to play outside <laughs> and I couldn't do that unsupervised. I never <laughs> saw myself as a comedian, never thought about being a comedian, possibly because I never saw anybody like me doing comedy. It's hard to imagine yourself doing something when you don't see yourself doing something, Fair. right? Like um, not a lot of girls dream about being pilots, you know? Why? Flying airplanes is dope. Right? Like, there's something to that too, right? The mirror principle, I believe. I was always, yes. But I was always funny, dude. Right on. One more question before I wrap. Is there a dream role that you have, maybe something on stage or even screen, that you would love to sink your teeth into? You know, honestly, I feel like uh, for me, the more I can bring this authenticity out into the world, so things that connect with me on that level, absolutely, you know? Uh, sometimes I get sent scripts and I'm just like, you know... I, I don't know. I But that's awesome that you're like, nah, man, I'm not just going to do it because you sent it to me. Right. But, you know, at the same time, I got to make this paper. So I feel like as much as I want to, you know, ha hold on to my morals, like there might be times where I'm like, you know, and, and there's not when I say morals, that's not to judge any God. Let me take that out of my no, 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 face no. right away. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean to say like, in doing the things that I feel are of value to me. And the thing is, is that, again, this is, I can go on about this, but I'm stuck in a society where the value system is not my value system, but I have to exist in this system. And therefore, I need the things that are valued in this system, including money, so that I can survive. So here I am trapped, right? But, but I do try to focus on my work and my creativity so that I can use my voice both behind and in front of, because I do know that I have other things to say, whether they're in my comedy shows or in, you know, the other things that I'm working on and creating, you know, because there's going to be roles that I'll write for myself. But if somebody were to be like, what's a role that you kind of like secretly like wish that you could do? I'd be like, uh, obviously I want to be like the bad guy in a movie. Um, like, but I want it to be like a comedic role as well. Like, have you ever seen that film Spy? With Melissa McCarthy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you know like uh, Rose Byrne? Yep. Uh, so you know that that character that she plays, but that yep. but like amplified. That would be like when she's like, you remind me of a sad clown. <laughs> like, oh my god, that's so funny to me. Why are you being so nice to me? You can't just be because I remind you of some sad Bulgarian clown. You remind me of my mother. Oh. She was marvelous, but she was different, eccentric like you are. No. The moment I saw you standing there in that abortion of a dress, it's as if to say, this is what I've got, world. It's hideous, but it's mine. Mm. Well, here's to your mom. To my mother. And to you. And here's to you. I mean, you may never be as wise as an owl, but you'll always be a hoot to me. <laughs> what a stupid fucking toast. 
It's legit so funny. And it's like, it's like a meaningless, there's no depth to this character at all, but it's just like real silly fun. I think that would be hilarious and fun to play, you know? Um, but of course, I'd love to also play real legit layered characters and bring more emotion to the camera in different ways than I've I've had the opportunity to. I, I, I know I have it all. So I like in me, I just have to find ways to dig it out. And as I become better at it, I'll be able to take on even greater roles. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, you know, as I hone my craft and also just get better at digging in, you know, uh, unapologetically without the shyness of showing showing that as well, right? So I, I have no doubt that whatever you do next, you'll be amazing. Thank you, Thank- yo. Well, Ms. Kanani, you have stayed with us almost double time here, but uh, we appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for your just absolutely endearing performance of an absolute rock of a human being. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can see your show. Where are you from from? Uh, maybe even up in Toronto. Yeah, it would be a pleasure to have you boys there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for devoting the time today. I really appreciate it. We it's really appreciate it. As always, I'm Lee. I'm Spro. She's Aaliyah Kanani. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. That was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. I'm glad. It's so nice that people like Aaliyah and Connor just don't even think twice about giving their time to a silly little podcast like ours and just like, fuck yeah, we'll come and talk to you guys about, <laughs> about the movie. It's nice. No, Well, that's how maybe that just, you know, proved the old stereotype of Canadians true. They're really nice people. Well, community of podcasters aside, one more time, big fat thanks to both Connor and Aaliyah. And we hope to stay in close contact with you guys and follow your careers for many years to come. Maybe even have you back on the show. But that, that's it for season three. This is everything that we planned out meticulously, psychotically, uh, writing and and watching and, and recording and editing and producing. It's all done. Season three in the can. Absolutely. And we have a wrap up episode coming up. So this is the time to air your grievances. Phone lines are open. Well, Lisa's his phone number is. Uh, uh, me, oh, uh, I thought we talked about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but our email is available. Our email is take on the academy at gmail.com. You can also reach us on social medias. Tell us what you liked about the season. Tell us what you didn't like. Tell us what you disagree with. Tell us what you want to see more of. We'll talk about it in our wrap up episode coming to you in January. Year in review 2022. Is this going to go down as one of the worst years in American cinema ever? I don't know. We're going to get let the year wrap up and then we're going to take a step back and just oh. look at the canvas and see, <laughs> see how much shit was thrown on it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, hey, until then, have a happy holidays, a happy new year. Don't eat too much. Don't drink too much. You know what, Lee? Well, I appreciate you. Uh, I sort of enjoy your company as well. Nice. Positive note to end on. Hooray. <laughs> We're having a lovely conversation. I'm enjoying this very much.